Today's readings from John, verse 25 through to 30. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's, let's pray together. That Jesus, we are so thankful to gather as your people, that unified, made one by your Holy Spirit this morning. And we confess, Lord, how what your word tells us, that apart from you, we can do nothing. So Lord, I pray that in our time of looking at your word, that you would create in us a deeper sense of abiding in you of relying on you, relying on your indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit, that we would leave, not only today, but this week, change people, people who not only hear your word, uh, but obey your word and do your word. Lord, we know that if this does not change our lives leaving today, then truly we have not, we have not really heard. And we want to hear this morning, Lord. In fact, we need to hear this morning. So I pray, Father, you would speak to us by your spirit. Amen. Well, I'm Jake. If I haven't met you, please uh, come say hi following the gathering. In the 1930s, uh, Pastor Chu, Pastor Chu was serving at a large Presbyterian church in Pyongyang uh, in what is now North Korea. Uh, At the time, just recently, before this, the church in Korea, at the beginning of the 20th century, 1907 to be precise, had experienced some great revival, a great move of the Holy Spirit. But as the years progressed, the opposition to the church in Korea increased. Pastor Chu, however, did not bow to government pressure. And because of this, Pastor Chu was arrested twice. And it was during this second imprisonment that Pastor Chu's health began to decline. Prisons in Korea at the time were not this luxurious affair. It was actually quite, quite difficult. And meeting with his wife one final time, as he was dying, Pastor Chu says these words to his wife. I've gone the road I'm supposed to go. Follow in my steps. Let's meet in heaven. I've gone the road I'm supposed to go. Pastor Chu died at 9.30 p.m. on April 13, 1944. Last week, if you weren't here, I said the only way to follow Jesus, the only way to follow Jesus is to follow him in death. It's the only way to follow Jesus. It is only in following him in death, death to self-sufficiency, death to self-preservation, that you and I may gain eternal life. And, And maybe you felt this walking out of the building last Sunday, it is, it is one thing to be convinced intellectually of this idea, right? Like the Bible teaches this, and so I think I'm convinced in my mind. It is quite another thing to be convinced in our hearts. 
in, in our doing, in, in our actions, in our, desire, in our desires. In other words, the, the deep transformational changes required to follow Jesus in obedience, it, it comes a little bit less readily. It doesn't come that easily. You know, we look at a man like Pastor Chu, and while we hope we would be faithful just like him, we can't really say for sure. So we ask, how did he do it? What was the secret? What is going on in the heart of a person following Jesus in death? This, this question, the heart of someone following Jesus in death, what's going on inside of us is what I want us to consider this morning. How do we move from, from mere thinking about this to, to, to doing this and, and living this out? What's true of our deepest desires? And to see this, I want us to spend our time in John three twenty five to 30, as Tom read, looking at this moment in the life and ministry of John the Baptist. See, John, John the Baptist, saw his role much the same way Pastor Chu saw his role. If you're not familiar with our friend uh, John the Baptist, let me give you a brief summary. In John 1, 6-8, John, not John the Baptist, but John the Gospel writer, and that will get confusing this morning, so keep up. John the Gospel writer, he says this about John the Baptist. He says this, There is a man sent from God whose name was John, different John than the one who's writing. He came as a witness to bear witness to, about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Really clearly, John the Baptist is not the light. He is just bearing witness about the light. And the rest of John 1 tells the same story. John says very plainly, I am not the Christ. I am not the hero. And when John sees Jesus, he says about Jesus, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. If we were to stick John in, in a time-traveling machine and, and sort of fly him back wherever time-traveling machines work, uh, fly him back to our present day and, and put John before a, a counselor, like, we think John might be diagnosed with like a low self-esteem, right? Like, like a negative self-image. I'm not the Christ. This person's before me. They're, they're greater than me. And yet, and yet, Jesus will say of John elsewhere, Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist. In a world where might is right, where bravado and faith and how we present ourselves is everything, how do we make sense of men like John the Baptist? How do we make sense of men like Pastor Chu. I want to borrow an outline from Frederick Bruner, who's a John scholar. And I want us to see this morning that the people following Jesus in death can describe their hearts, can describe their desires in three I am statements. Three I am statements. The first is this, I am content. The second is I am second. The third is, and I am disappearing. I am content, I am second, and I am disappearing. So first, I am content. And as Bruner elaborates, I am content, I am exactly where I'm supposed to be. 
At the beginning of John 3, if you have your Bibles open, I'd encourage you, go to John 3. At the beginning of John 3, we see that Jesus and his disciples have moved onto John's turf. And John was the baptizing game in town. And now Jesus and his disciples, they come and they start baptizing people as well. And the tide, so to speak, is beginning to turn on John's ministry. And it's a shift that can be seen starting in John 3.25. We just heard this read. Look here with me. John 3.25 says this. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now my guess, and correct me if I'm wrong, is we do not leave this place and go for brunch or head to the Laughing Bean or to the Slow Can and sit down and be like, guys, let's discuss purification today. Like what's going on with purification? You know, let's just, let's just chat about this for a bit, right? But, but in Jesus' day, in John's day, issues surrounding purification, how one is made holy and right before a holy and just God, that was a big discussion. That was a, 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 a hot topic, if, if you will. See, some, building off of the Old Testament, using the Old Testament as sort of their launching point, had created a whole system of, of penance and sacrifice in order to be made holy before God. Still others had said, you know what you need to do? It's really easy. Just bathe in cold water. And if you bathe in cold water, then coming out, if you've ever been baptized in the Pacific Ocean, you know this, right? You feel alive, right? You feel pure. You feel like, I I don't know. Some were teaching that. And, And now here comes Jesus. And in John 3, Jesus has been talking about, no, no, you need to be reborn. You need to be made new. I'm going to baptize you with water and the Spirit. I'm going to give you a whole new life. It's going to come through me. And so what we have in verse 25 is not some, some random discussion, but in verse 25, we have an attempt by this, by this one person. Notice, it's singular, a Jew. This one person is trying to pull John and trying to pull his disciples into the controversy of the day. What do you have to say about Jesus, John? How does his baptism compare to to, to yours, John? Unless we begin to think that this was friendly debate or good-willed scholarly discussion, in verse 26, the real motive for this, this conversation is revealed. Look at verse 26 in your Bibles with me. It says this, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, they're talking about Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And all are going to him. Now, I don't know if you've experienced this before, but when something makes you angry or embittered, like you exaggerate it, isn't that true? It's like you're waiting in line at ICBC and this is taking forever, right? Right? You've been standing here for eternity. You begin to exaggerate what's actually happening, right? Every other car on the road when you're driving, like they're a terrible driver. Like they have no idea how to drive. Is that true? No. But I'm angry and I'm bitter and it seems like that. That's what's happening in our text today. Angry, bitter about the changing tides in ministry, John's disciples begin to, to, to exaggerate. Is everyone going to Jesus? No. If you look up just in John 3.23, we see that people are still coming to John to be baptized. Now, are some people going to Jesus? Are some people preferring Jesus over John? Yeah. 
that is happening. Now, how is John going to feel about that? Read his response to me in verse 27. And John answered, this is so good. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And John's response is, I am content. I am exactly where I am supposed to be. I'm content. I'm exactly where God would have me. This phrase, given from heaven, really just means given from God or or, or received from, from God. And so to the question of John, aren't you envious about these people going to Jesus? Don't you think you should have a more high profile position? Don't you think that's that's unfair? Look at all the work you've done, John, right? You've established this ministry, right? Assert yourself, John. Don't you think that's unfair? To that, John's response is that he is exactly, entirely, completely where God would have him be. As one commentator says, both John and Jesus were given their roles by heaven, and John was entirely content with his. Entirely content. We, like John and like Jesus before us, need to learn to be content in the roles we've been given. To believe that we are today, in this moment, in this place, exactly where God would have us be. And in fact, the best antidote to envy, the cure for coveting, if you will, is a firm conviction and belief that God is in control. For John, this meant resting and trusting and being content with his role in this time, in this place, in this moment, in God's unfolding story. And we would do well to learn from him. See, when we fail, and when I fail, when we fail to be content where the Lord has us, not only do we betray deep-seated thoughts of unbelief, we are actually saying this. Listen, we're actually saying this. If I was in control, right? And if you're a control freak like me, like you're resonating right now a little bit, right? You should have seen me this morning running around with my head chopped off, right? If you're a control freak like me, right? right? If I was in control, if this whole thing was up to me, uh, it would be different. I would be somewhere different. I would be doing something different. My life wouldn't look like this. And God is replaced by us and our sovereign will, our sovereign plan. And we always think our sovereign plan is so much better. It's at least a lot easier. And here's the problem with that. If you and I are the sovereign rulers we've made ourselves out to be, I, I promise you this, this will always lead to radical discontent in our life. Radical discontent. Radical dissatisfaction. Radical insecurity. A never-ending search through travel, through our jobs, through our family, to find that ever-so-elusive piece of being content, of being happy. And further... This discontentment will destroy, it will destroy, count on it, every relationship you ever have. James, in typical James fashion, if you've ever read James before, you know James does not mince words, right? He's he's very clear, he's very straightforward. Uh, He does not mince words about the origins and impact of us not being content. James 3, 14 to 16, it won't be on a slide behind me, but let me read James 3, 14 and 16 to you. James says this, 
But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, uh, in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Listen to what James says in verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. We could say, wear side glances and peering over your fence and envy exist in our lives, in the church, in our home, in our workplaces. We know, we, we've seen this, we've experienced this. There will be nothing good. There will be disorder, James says, and every vile practice. Again, whether you follow Jesus or not this morning, it's almost besides the point. We can all relate to this. Like the numbers and the reports and the statistics don't lie. We are getting richer. We are getting wealthier. You might not be getting wealthier, but we, as a whole, are getting wealthier. But statistically, we are not getting happier. We've got more knowledge at our fingertips than at any other point in human history, and yet we are more unsure of ourselves than we have ever been. We are the most insecure at any point in human history. We have global access in a way previously unimaginable. Yeah, we are lonelier. We are lonelier than any other time in history. See, John says he's found the antidote to this. He's found the cure. Where you and I might bristle, might mm, shake at the idea that we are not main characters in our own story, John contentedly, listen, joyfully celebrates his supporting role in God's story. A story where John says his loving father is in control. A story where Jesus, the eternal son, must take center stage. And where John is exactly where he is supposed to be. Listen to what Frederick Bruner says, that same John scholar. He says this, It is extremely comforting to know that what one has been given or has not been given in one's vocation is traceable not only to our abilities and disabilities, but even more, even greatly, even more significantly to the providence of God. Confidence in the sovereignty of God delivers vocational peace. So what does this look like in practice? How do we live this out? As employees and employers, some of us, uh, this does not mean that we slip into neutral and just coast our way through work, right? Well, God's in control. It doesn't really matter. I'll just take the foot off the gas. Rather, it means we work diligently and faithfully and trust God with the outcome. Trust God with the results. It means that we are content in knowing what our strengths are. That we are content in knowing what our weaknesses are. It means we don't try to be somebody else at work. As parents, this does not mean we say, well, those are my sins, and my kids need to learn to, to put up with them, just to deal with them, right? This is just who I am. No. It means that we strive to show our kids Jesus, knowing all the while that Jesus is well aware of our struggles. And knowing this, parents, please hear this, that you do not have those kids by chance. 
And it's not by accident. But in the providence of God, he has given you those children to form something in you and through you that you might not be able to see right now. As a church, this does not mean we look to the left or to the right in envy. Lord willing, there is coming a day when another church plants in Hastings Sunrise. And you know what we're going to do on that day? We're going to throw a party. We're going to celebrate. If they preach the gospel and hold Jesus up high, we're going to celebrate. Why? Because it will take more than us for us to reach Hastings Sunrise with the good news of Jesus. And what will we do? We'll throw that party and we'll keep on going on our way. Playing the role, being content in the place that God has called us. And the question this morning, and it's a very penetrating question, are you content with what the Lord has given you? Are you content with your station in this life? Or are your fantasies filled with more recognition, more money, somewhere else with more influence, more of what they and those people have? At the end of John's gospel, Jesus has been resurrected. And we have this beautiful scene where the apostle Peter is described by John the gospel writer. Listen to this. In John 21, verses 20 to 22, listen to John the gospel writer describe this scene with Peter. Peter turned, and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. It's awesome how John calls himself the disciple who Jesus loved in his own gospel, right? Like, that's awesome. Maybe. That's fine. I'm not going to talk to you anymore. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he sees John. He said to Jesus, what did he say to Jesus? Can we relate with Peter's question, right? We, we can relate. Lord, what about this man? Like, what's he going to do? I, I know what you've called me to do. You made that really clear. But what about this guy? What's he going to do? And Jesus said to him, listen, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? What is that to you, Peter? You, Peter, and you, Christ City, you follow me. Don't look at John, Peter. Don't worry about what I'm calling John to do. Jesus says, you, you, Peter, you follow me. Here's the point. Following Jesus in death will require that we all do that, that we all die. But... My death might not look like your death. And your death might not look like my death. What the Lord calls you to might not be exactly what he calls me to. And what he calls me to might not be exactly what he calls you to. And are we content in that? Are we looking at somebody else? But what about this guy? John says, I am content. I am exactly where I am supposed to be. But But he says more. See, a failure to be able to say, I am content, is perhaps more foundationally rooted in a failure to say, I am second. I exist to point to Jesus, the bridegroom. Look at John three twenty-eight to 29 with me. Let's read that together. You yourself bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Look at verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And then John says this, Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. 
this joy of mine is now complete. I did my, my last wedding of the summer this past uh, weekend, and so this, this imagery is really fresh in, in my mind, and, and maybe you can, you can relate to this. Uh, there's this imagery here, imagery uh, describing Jesus as the groom and the church as the bride. Imagery we find all over the Bible, Old and New Testament, and John's building on that. He, he, he's picking that up. If you've ever been to a wedding party before, been a part of a wedding party before, you know the scene. And I love how Tom and Courtney are front row here because I, cause they just got married. I just saw this between them t- those two. I won't, I won't make, pick on you guys anymore. You know the scene, right? The doors open and the bride comes in and the groom, it's my favorite part of a wedding by far, and Tom did this. Uh, the groom sees the bride and poof, like they're destroyed, right? They're like, they're undone. Like they're completely like, they're a mess. Right, like something profound is happening. Notice this. Me, as the officiant, and the best man and the maid of honor who are standing there, what are they feeling? Like there's no bitterness, right? There's no envy, unless like weirdly, like the, the groom's best man wants to marry that girl. Like unless there's something weird going on, right? They're just celebrating that, right? They have the joy of being nearby and hearing, hearing these vows, seeing this union, of being swept up in the excitement of the day. It is one of my favorite things to be a part of. There's not an ounce of jealousy or bitterness. You just feel immensely privileged. You feel honored just to be that close, just to be seeing it all unfold. This is the scene John is describing. He says this, I'm only the best man, and I am not the groom, and it's my joy to be the best man. I'm excited to be the best man. He says, it's my joy to listen in, to, 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 to incline my ear as Jesus calls his bride, the church. It's my joy to watch him do this. John says this, it's my joy to see the ministry of Jesus grow more prominent. In fact, I have been working to the end that Jesus would increase and I might decrease. Do you catch John's joy, his excitement, the privilege, the honor? John says, I am second, and it has been my joy to be second. The Apostle Paul picks up on this one of his letters that he wrote, where he, he just like John, recognizes that his role is merely facilitating a union, merely facilitating a marriage. And so Paul is like the limo driver. He, he, he's just taking the bride to the wedding, right? Uh, Paul's just like the wedding planner, making sure things are in place so that the bride and the bridegroom can come and have that union. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, For I feel a divine jealousy for you. Why? Listen, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. John and Paul and Pastor Chu, whoever, they are merely facilitating a union with Jesus. They're just the limo taking the bride to the bridegroom, background players, really. And they're eager to take a secondary role because, and this is the key, they know Jesus. They've seen Jesus. They have an increasing love for Jesus. And here's the question we need to answer this morning. Do we have a love and a vision for Jesus that puts us in our place? Do we have a love for Jesus that puts us in our place? That joyfully, willingly makes us second? The fact is, our refusal to be second uh, to Jesus in our life 
is not only an indicator of pride, I think it is, but also might be an indicator that we are worshiping a small Jesus of our own creation. All right, Jesus, who's sort of like, you know, meddling middle management. If you watch The Office, like a Jesus who's like Gabe, right? Meddling middle management, sort of just imposing on our life some archaic moral code. And really, he's just annoying, and he's small, and he's, he, he's petty. Right? Who would want to be second to that? Who would ever want to love a Jesus like that? See, John's willingness to play second fiddle in the story of Jesus is entirely based on his love for Jesus. Catch this. Who is the Christ? He says this. Jesus, who is the Christ. There are no blurred lines here. There is no confusion here. Earlier in John 1.15, if you have your Bibles, go to John 1.15 with me. Earlier in John 1.15, John the Baptist is quoted as saying, in respect to Jesus, look at this, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. See, John and Jesus live in a world where the older teacher, uh, the one who was there first, the one whose ministry began first, gets more prominence, right? Gets the respect and the deference, right? Gets the honor, gets the privilege. And so really, from a worldly perspective, Jesus should be below John. But John says this. Listen, despite whose public ministry began first, despite that, Jesus ranks ahead of me because Jesus is the eternal word. And not only was Jesus before me, hear this, Christ City, he is before all things. See how natural it is for John to go second to that? Like, who wouldn't be second to that? Like, how big a view of yourself do you have to have to not be second to Jesus, who is the eternal word? John sees Jesus, he looks at Jesus and does not see meddling middle management. John looks at Jesus and sees, he sees this, he sees God in flesh. Always existing, the entire world being made through him. John looks at Jesus and sees the one in whom there is eternal and abundant life. John looks at Jesus and sees the light, the light, the true light that expels the darkness of humanity. John the Baptist looks at Jesus and sees in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the breaking in of a new kingdom, a new way of living. And then John turns to himself. He does a quick survey, right? It's a really quick survey. And he sees none of those things in himself. And if John the Baptist were here this morning, he would turn and look at you, and he would see none of those things in you. And this is not a bad thing. This is not a bad thing. Our mission statement as a church is not to create opportunities for people to encounter Heath. (laughs) Praise God. (laughs) Our mission statement as a church is not to create opportunities for people to encounter Jake. Even louder, praise God. Our mission statement as a church is not to create opportunities for people to encounter Mel or Sarah. Our mission statement as a church is what? Creating opportunities for people to encounter Jesus. Why is that? Because only Jesus and only by his spirit can he do the things that you and I are so incapable of doing. John looks at us and thankfully he does not see the Christ. 
He does not see the person who holds the weight of all his expectations. That's a good thing. Taking a posture of I am second, it comes really quickly when we realize, when we realize this morning, just who it is that we are listening to in Scripture. Just who it is we get to share when we open up our homes in hospitality. Just who it is who has the power to reach into our lives and to reach into the lives of people in this neighborhood and save them and transform them. Just who it is who is king over us and his church. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God. See, ultimately, these heart postures, I am content and I am second, they find their inevitable end, their inevitable conclusion in our third and final I am statement this morning. I am disappearing. I am disappearing. I am happy to decrease. He must increase. John 3.30, if you have your Bibles, look with me. Short, but very powerful. John 3.30. He must increase but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's worth noting that before our text this morning, in a little parenthetical note in in verse 24, John includes this. uh, For John the Baptist had not yet been put in prison. For John had not yet been put in prison. What follows in our text today is John, he's bowing off the stage, if you will, of his public ministry. He's done his part, he played his role, and now he's sinking back. He's fading back. It's been his joy to do this, and now he is disappearing. Now we learn from the other Gospels, and it's alluded to here, John will eventually be arrested and eventually be beheaded. But notice this. John is not begrudgingly giving way to the better and the newer and the cooler ministry in town. Like he's not like, eh, I wish I could have, a, uh, could have had a longer run. No, John is joyfully choosing his own decrease. He's joyfully choosing his own decrease and the decrease of his disciples, knowing that this decrease will mean and increase the name and ministry of Jesus. Really simple question. What does this mean for us today? What does John 3.30 mean for us this morning? I think first thing is this. On one level, it means this really simply, that if we are trying to increase our stature, if we are trying to increase our brand, our name, indeed, if we live to do this, at best, we are obscuring the name of Jesus, and at worst, we are blocking the name of Jesus from ever being seen ever. You know, like a spotlight, we're standing in front of it, saying, actually, I'm here right now. Actually, this is about me in this moment. What would have happened if John the Baptist took the bait? If he took the bait? If he had bought into the resentment and envy of his disciples? If he had said, listen, yeah, you're right. I deserve a bigger slice of the pie. I deserve more recognition, maybe a statue. I'm not getting the respect I feel like I deserve around here. Here's one thing we know. Here's one thing we know. John would have missed playing a key role in the greatest story ever told. He would have missed it. The greatest man born of woman in the eyes of the eternal son Jesus forfeited to become just a bit better than average man in the eyes of other people for a period of time. He would have lost it all. 
which leads me to believe that if we want to play a role, if we want to play a role, if we want to contribute to the work of the kingdom of God in this place as individuals and as a church in what Jesus wants to do in Vancouver by his spirit, it will mean a lot less look at me, a lot less look at Christ City East Vancouver, and a lot more look at Jesus. A lot less, here's what I think about this issue. Here's my view, my take on this issue. And a lot more, here's what Jesus says about this issue. It will mean a lot more learning to abide in him. A lot more him showing us the parts of us that he wants to transform by his spirit. A lot more him revealing our patterns of thinking untouched by his kingship. Untouched by his lordship. And if you're not a follower of Jesus here this morning, I want to acknowledge something. This sounds a lot like brainwashing, doesn't it? Right? If you're not a follower of Jesus, does this not sound like brainwashing? But I think that's because, I think it's only because, you failed to see your captivity to this current cultural moment and the narrative that is being sold to us every single day. All of our heroes... All of our cultural heroes, it seems, in books, in movies, who are they? They are those who have made it out of their station, out of their place in the world to achieve something better. Right? My kids love Captain America. What's the story of Captain America? Scrawny guy, weakling, wimp, goes into a machine, gets transformed, changed, does something amazing, right? Captain America summarizes how we think about heroes, does he not? From this to this. Nothing to something. Peered over the fence and got what he couldn't get before. Captain America, the hero of our age. This is perfectly seen in our celebrity culture. Now there is an author, his name is Andrew Byers. He wrote a book on digital media, and and I'm not talking about the, the, the book right now, but in that book he talks about and compares John the Baptist to the celebrity culture of our day. And specifically he notes how weird... John the Baptist's ministry would have seemed in our day and age of celebrity culture, right? It would have seemed so strange, so foreign, how out of place it would have been in a culture that loves to see people being put up on pedestals, loves to find a person and put that person at the head of something and then bow down to that person. And John the Baptist says, nope. He's not self-seeking. He's not self-promoting. He's not self-focused. Rather, at the heart of John's ministry is what Byers calls a a two-dimensional trajectory. A two-dimensional trajectory. And if you don't like math, you don't know what those words mean, let me explain. Byers says this. So a two-dimensional trajectory marks the Baptist celebrity status. This This is how he describes it. He is always pointing to another while simultaneously fading into the collective voice of the church. He is always pointing to another while simultaneously, at the exact same time, right? He's pointing and walking back. We can think of it like that. He is always pointing to another while simultaneously fading into the collective voice of the church. If you have your Bibles, I wasn't going to say this, but I'm going to say this because it's cool. In John 3.31, you'll notice that the quotation marks stop at John 30. But there's some debate from translators as to whether or not John continues to speak all the way to the end of chapter 3. And really, they don't know for sure. Is this John talking, or is this John the gospel writer talking at this point? What's really cool, what's been happening, is John's voice and the voice of the church throughout the ages has sort of blended together. It's molded together. And where John starts, and where John the gospel writer picks it up, you can't really tell. 
Do you see that? John says, you must increase Jesus and I must decrease. And we see this in the very text of the Bible itself. The things perhaps said by John himself aren't even credited to John. Doesn't even get the quotes for. That's just a nerdy thing I thought I would share with you. The job of John the Baptist was to point to Jesus and then fade into the long line of people who have pointed to Jesus throughout the ages. John the Baptist takes his spot as he fades. He takes his spot alongside Moses. He takes his spot alongside Isaiah. He he takes his spot alongside uh, Peter and and, and Abraham. In in the future, John the Baptist will be joined by, by Pastor Chu. Countless others. Names we will never, ever, ever know on this side of eternity. Why? Because they were disappearing. Just like you and I, disappearing. What I want us to see this morning is that we are called to do the exact same. Perhaps this disappearing, this decreasing, is best summed up in the famous uh, quote from Count Zinzendorf. It says this, Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. We would do well as a church to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Pointing to another, all the while fading back into the collective voice of the church throughout the ages. So here's my charge, Christ City. Here's my charge. Next week we start the Sermon on the Mount. This is the end of the Death and Decrease series. Let us be a people committed to death and decrease. And not because we're gluttons for punishment or because, as Freud would say, we secretly hate ourselves, but because we really believe that the tools of death and decrease, those tools are the tools Jesus wants to use to form himself in us. That the tools of death and decrease are the ones that he wants to to make us and our neighborhood into what he desires it to be. There will be times when we want to cut corners or take the easy way. Times when we will pull out of something or not do something because we think in our hearts this should be easier. Isn't that the message of our day and age? If it's easier, it should be right. Right? If it comes naturally, do that. And yet, we see in the Bible, death decrease. These are the tools, indeed, these are the the, the primary tools that Jesus uses to form himself in us and and, and through us. And so when that thought arises, when you think, man, I wish this was easier, no, this hard thing, this hard thing, Jesus is using this hard thing. Indeed, he has always used this hard thing. See, what we are promised in the midst of this death, in the midst of this decrease, just like John the Baptist, is joy. That's the paradox here. Now, in Jesus, a growing sign of our Christian maturity is deepening joy as his name, his glory, his fame eclipses our own. We too can have the joy that Pastor Chu had, that John the Baptist had, and that countless others have had who we will never know about. Would you stand with me as we respond this morning? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.